Romans chapter 1, verse 1 is our text for today. This is the first sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 37 handwritten pages, and the title of today's sermon is Paul, New Man. New book, same old crowd. Paul, New Man. Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As I preach today, please keep in mind that God loves you. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and it is powerful. Even in reading the scripture, we are hearing your voice. And so we are thankful that you have chosen to communicate with us and to communicate with us so clearly in love. Help us, Lord, as we listen to the word today to remember and to, to think about, to meditate on the fact that you love us. And even in giving your word, you demonstrate that you love us. Lord, you have supremely communicated that you love us in the giving of your Son. And so today, as I preach, Lord, may the gospel be clear. Lord, may the gospel be predominant. Be with me as I speak. Lord, as we embark upon this new book, I pray that I will be able to communicate it in a way that is clear and accurate and convicting. Then, Father, I pray for every person that is listening, Lord, that they will be given ears from you, so, Lord, that they might hear, understand, listen, and obey. And so now, Lord, we are excited to embark upon this new book, uh, but, Lord, we understand that this excitement is superficial and it is hollow unless your Spirit is pleased to work in our midst. And so we pray Blessed Holy Spirit, move in our midst for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our outline today is a two-point outline, and it is the letter and the author. Point number one, the letter. Point number two, the author. Uh, point number one has six subpoints. Point number two has four subpoints. So that's two points with ten subpoints, and all of the subpoints. Start with the letter S. Let's begin with Roman numeral one, the letter. The New Testament book that we call Romans is not a story, and it is not a textbook on theology. In fact, it's not a book at all. It's a letter, or if you want to get fancy, it is an epistle. Now, before we even get into chapter one, I want to do an overview of the book of Romans. And I want to direct our thoughts in these introductory matters along the following six lines. The size, the significance, the sender, the saints, the synopsis, and the structure. And I think that if you are able to grasp these six introductory items, it's going to help you to accurately interpret the text, not just the text for today, but hopefully it will be of value as we go through the entire book. So it is my goal this morning to move quickly through these six alliterated words, so please pay close attention. First of all, let us consider the size. Among those who collect really old documents, uh, they have collected about 1,400 letters from antiquity. 1,400 of them have survived. 
Antiquity means the ancient Near East, long, long, long ago. Well, one of the most prolific writers was a man by the name of Cicero. He was a Roman statesman, and he was born about 100 B.C. We have 800 of his letters. Now, the average length of one of those letters was about 300 words. The average length of a letter was about 300 words. Well, in the New Testament, we have 13 letters from the Apostle Paul. Do you understand that the average length of one of Paul's letters is 1,300 words? And Romans is the largest of all of Paul's letters, and it is about 7,100 words in length. It is enormous. So its size should tell you that it is unusual, it is unique, and it is of great importance. It's a, it's a really big letter. Next, I want you to know the, note the significance of the book of Romans in church history. For the first 1,500 years of church history, the most influential figure was St. Augustine of Hippo. You understand that this man in North Africa was converted while reading Romans chapter 13. The Protestant Reformation was chiefly sparked by Martin Luther. You do understand that Martin Luther was converted when he read that the just shall live by faith in Romans chapter 1. And the list goes on and on. For example, John Bunyan and John Wesley were both converted either reading the book of Romans or reading a commentary on the book of Romans. To the best of our knowledge, no other book in the Bible has had a greater impact upon the history of the church than the book of Romans. It is a very significant body of literature. And next, I want you to note the sender or the author who is the Apostle Paul. Now, when we get to Roman numeral two, we're on Roman numeral one right now, which is the letter. Soon we're going to get to Roman numeral two, which is the author. When we get to Roman numeral two, I'm going to talk about Paul as he describes himself in the text of chapter one, verse one. But for right now, in this introductory section, the letter, which is now the third sub-point of Roman numeral one, the sender, I want to talk about the history of Paul's life leading up to and including the writing of this letter. So I'm going to be skimming right now. I'm going to be going very fast. If you want a fuller picture of who the apostle Paul was, you need to read Acts uh, chapters 9 through 28. And of course, you know who wrote Acts chapters 9 through 28. It was Cool Hand Luke reading, writing about Paul Newman. Wow, you're just, uh, you're just evil. Uh, you're, 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 you're just a bad audience. That's, this is, this is good material. All right. <clears throat> so, if we follow the map of where he traveled, we're going to note that, uh, Saul, which is his Jewish name, was born about the year AD 5 in the Roman uh, city of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was a center for Greek culture in a region called Cilicia. It's, it's close to the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. He moves to Jerusalem and he studies Jewish law at the school of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the most revered teacher of Judaism at the time. Uh, Paul advances beyond all of his classmates to the point where he becomes a Pharisee. 
He is a, he is a, he is a zealous persecutor of the church. He is a Christian, uh, hater. He is a Christ hater. He's responsible for Christians being martyred. But that all changes in Acts chapter 9 when he is on his way to Damascus, uh, to arrest Christians. And he is converted when he sees a bright light and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he is there converted and he is there told that he is going to serve the Lord Jesus and that he's going to have to suffer many things for the Lord Jesus. After he leaves Damascus, he spends the next three years in isolation in Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia near Damascus. And it is during these three years that Paul is taught directly by the risen Christ. After three years, he decides he wants to go to Jerusalem and to connect with the church there. And he does connect with the church there, but at first, uh, they were initially a little bit skeptical of him. But through the biblical doctrine of encouragement, Barnabas gets him an introduction with the apostles, and he spends about two weeks in Jerusalem. But after about two weeks, he has to run for his life, and he goes back to his hometown in Tarsus. And he stays in Tarsus, until Barnabas comes to get him. Now, why does Barnabas come from Jerusalem to uh, Tarsus to get Paul? Well, because the revival has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Antioch is now the place where revival is happening. People are getting saved. People who have been driven out of Jerusalem have moved up to Antioch. And and Barnabas needs help at the church at Antioch, so he goes to Tarsus, he picks up Paul, and they go to Antioch in Syria for about a year. Uh, during this time, Paul and Barnabas make a trip together to Jerusalem in order to deliver funds, relief funds for the poor and for those who are hurting in Jerusalem. Then they go back to Antioch. And then when we get to Acts chapter 13, we come upon what is called the first missionary journey of Paul. And the Holy Spirit calls or separates Barnabas and Paul to be missionaries. And they go on the first missionary journey. And that is, they travel down into Cyprus and they go up into the Roman region of Galatia. And then they come back to their home base at the end of this missionary journey to Antioch. During this time, they have to go over to Jerusalem for a brief period of time for what is known as the Jerusalem Council in order to settle the debate as to whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And of course, the answer is they do not. Then Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and they're getting ready for the second missionary journey. But Paul and Barnabas have a dispute such that when Paul embarks upon his second missionary journey, he has a new partner now, and his new partner is Silas. This time, he goes farther west, his second missionary journey, all the way to Europe, to Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and to Achaia, which is southern Greece, and he visits and establishes churches and, and works in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. Now, Paul spent a relatively long time in Corinth preaching the gospel, establishing that church, and supporting himself by making tents. He leaves Corinth, and on his way back to uh, his home base in Antioch, he stops in Ephesus on his way home. And finally, at the end of his second missionary journey, he arrives back in Antioch. 
Which brings us to Paul's third missionary journey, and it was on Paul's third missionary journey that he writes the book of Romans. First of all, he goes back to Ephesus, and he's there for about three years. Uh, This was a very fruitful time in Ephesus. It was likely during this time, which was probably the years about A.D. 53 to 56, that all seven of the churches of Revelation were founded. He leaves Ephesus, and, and he goes back to Macedonia. And where does he go in Macedonia? He goes to Corinth. Now, this is significant. He only stays in Corinth for about three months. But it was during this three-month period that he writes the book of Romans. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we believe that he wrote this, and we can read about it in Acts chapter 20, why he wrote it during this time. But one of the key reasons we believe this is because at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 23, Paul writes about a man by the name of Gaius. And it says in Romans 16, 23, Gaius who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Well, why do we think then the origin of the writing of the book of Romans is from Corinth? Because in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul talks about the fact that he baptized a man by the name of Gaius in Corinth. Therefore, we conclude when we read the end of the book of Romans that he was in Corinth when he wrote the book of Romans, because he says, I'm staying with this guy, and he's also hosting the, the, the entire church, and he greets you. So, give or take, the year now is about the year A.D. 57. Maybe it's 56, maybe it's 58, but give or take, it's about the year A.D. 57, and that is what led Paul historically and geographically to the point where he has written the book of Romans. Now, I bore you with this travelogue for two reasons. First of all, so that you will note that Paul never actually met these people in Rome. He never actually traveled to Rome when he writes this letter. He knows some of them, and and he knows about a lot of them, but he's never actually been there. The second reason that I, I give you all of this information so that you will know that by the time he writes the letter to the Romans, he is about 55 years old, and he has been a Christian for about a quarter of a century. So he's a very well-seasoned apostle by the time he writes the book of Romans, which brings us next in our outline to the saints or to the audience. They are called saints in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. A saint is anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ, What do we know about Paul's audience, the Church of Rome? How was this church started? We don't know. There's a little bit of speculation that perhaps, as some have suggested, because on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, we read that there were people from Rome who were visiting Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell and when the church was birthed and when 3,000 people were saved. Perhaps it is just speculation. These people took the message of the gospel, having witnessed the day of Pentecost, from Jerusalem back to Rome, and they planted the church there, but we're not sure. What we do know, however, with certainty is that the church was made up of Gentiles and Jews. And this is important. And the primary audience, and probably the majority of people that made up the church at Rome, were Gentiles. 
Now, a lot of authors have speculated as to how and why the church uh, had this unique demographic breakdown. But again, that's all speculation. They talk about the fact that the Roman emperor for a time expelled all of the Jews out of Rome, and then they were allowed to come back in, and so the church was Jewish, and then it became Gentile, and then Jews came back in. But, but, but we really we really don't know. That's all speculation. What we do know from actually reading the book of Romans is that Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, directs most of the words in this book to a Gentile audience. So, for example, in chapter 11, verse 13, Paul writes, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He's directly speaking to Gentiles, but there are also other places in the book of Romans where he is addressing the Jews. Uh, he starts off an argument in chapter 2, verse 17, by saying, but if you call yourself a Jew, well, obviously there were some people there who called themselves Jews, and he is addressing them. So it is Jews and Gentiles. And part of the letter is going to be addressing, and this is really key, the tension or the friction between Jewish and Gentile believers in the Roman church and how the gospel brings them together. But regardless of their ethnicity, the one thing that they all had in common, chapter 1, verse 7, is that they were saints. Uh, They were born again. They were saved. And so I ask you today, are you born again? Are you saved? Do you know the Lord? The Bible says you must be born again. And the Bible says that there is good news, that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. But this congregation is a congregation of Christians, Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles in the same church, which brings us to the next of our subpoints, and that is the synopsis. What is the reason why Paul wrote this book? What was his purpose in writing it? Uh, what is the summary of the book as a whole? And this is where I need you to really concentrate and to put on your thinking caps. What is the synopsis of the book? I just want to say that uh, in this particular subpoint, I'm going to be leaning heavily upon the writings of uh, the biblical commentator Tom Schreiner, and I hope that I'm going to be able to sufficiently summarize his argument. Uh, here's the way it goes. Paul was writing primarily to resolve conflicts between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church at Rome. But Paul couldn't arbitrate the debate between the Jews and the Gentiles simply by rendering his opinion right out of the gates. He he could have done that, but that would have been a very poor strategy. It would have been an unwise strategy. He he wants them to get along, but the first thing that he talks about is not the fact that they should get along. Here's the key. The first thing that Paul has to do before he addresses the problem of Jewish-Gentile tension in the church, he first needs to summarize the basic content of his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially as it pertains to Jews and Gentiles and their relationship to one another. So it is a call for unity, 
But it's not just this feel-good call for unity. It's not just, you know, come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. The Young Bloods, 1969. It's just not this touchy-feely, hey, we all need to just get along, so can't we, can't we just get along? No, that's not it at all. It is a unity, but it is a unity that is based on the gospel. The other reason that Paul needs to establish his gospel is because everywhere he goes as a missionary, he is criticized and he is lied about by his enemies, mostly his Jewish enemies. And so what he needed to do was to establish himself and his gospel before giving practical instructions about unity in the body. Listen to how Schreiner puts it. He, speaking of Paul, must satisfy both Jewish and Gentile Christians that his stance on the law of Moses and circumcision and the place of Israel accords with or is in line with the Old Testament scriptures, end quote. Do you understand? Are, are you with me? It is important that you be with me at this point because this is the, this is the purpose for which the book was written. Paul knows from various reports, probably mostly from Priscilla and Aquila, who you remember they were co-tent makers with him. He, he knows from them that they've been kicked out of Rome and now they're with him and they've brought a report to him, probably it's from them, that Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church are having trouble getting along. So Paul needs to address it. But rather than a light or let, write a letter saying, do this and don't do that right off the bat, what he does first is he establishes his gospel as the basis for these practical instructions. And that's what you have in Romans chapters 1 through 8. It is the basis or the foundation for giving instruction. It is his gospel, which has to be spelled out first, Romans chapters 1 through 8. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate it in this way. Uh, we are a church. We have money. Uh, we use that money to spread the gospel around the world. One of the ways we do this is that we support missionaries. And from time to time, people will come to us saying, I am a missionary, I'm going to a certain location, and and uh, would you consider partnering with me? Would you consider helping me? Would you consider giving me money? Most of them want to share um, where they are going and what they will be doing and what their strategy is, and these things are important to know. We need to know where you're going, what you're doing, and how you're going to do it. But before we know any of that, before we know any of that, here's what we need to ask these missionaries. What do you believe? What is the gospel? What is your doctrine? What is your, what is your theology? What is your testimony? And you see what Paul does here is he bends over backwards to address the content of the gospel first and foremost before addressing the practical issues. The Schreiner goes on to say, Paul's particular advice to the strong and the weak in Romans 14 and 15, let me just stop right there. You might not know what's in Romans chapters 14 and 15, but I'm telling you that it is Paul addressing those that are weak in the faith and those that are strong in the faith and how they are to get along with one another. Schreiner says, Paul's particular advice to the strong and to the weak in Romans 14 and 15 would never be accepted if fundamental disagreement existed over his conception of the role of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan. Thus, one of Paul's primary aims was to unify the church in Rome through the gospel. 
I read that, and I'm going to read it two more times because this is the heart of the center of the middle of the thing right in the really, really center of the bullseye, and that is this. Paul's primary aim was to unify the church in Rome through the gospel. Paul's primary aim was to unify the church in Rome through the gospel. So the Jews and Gentiles together would worship God in harmony, understanding that their unified worship fulfilled what the Old Testament scriptures taught, end quote, and I sure hope you understood Schreiner's argument. You see, Paul's purpose was to bring about unity between Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church, but he also wanted to accomplish something else in writing to Rome, and that is he needed to raise funds. He was hoping that this unified congregation would support, financially support, and give prayer support and encouragement to his missionary endeavors even farther to the west in Spain. If you can look in the back of the book of Romans, chapter 15, listen to verses 22 through 24, and Paul tells them that he is writing to them so that they will give him money. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that is the regions of the east, the regions where he has already planted all of these churches, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, so my work in the east is done and I want to be with you, therefore, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing, and I want to stay forever, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. I need money if I'm going to get there once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So, uh, I, I, listen, you, you guys need to be united. Uh, you need to come together in the gospel. And by the way, I've wanted to see you and to meet you for a long time. I want to pass through, I want to spend a little bit of time with you, and I'm going to need some money in order to get where I am going. So, the synopsis is, I need you people to be on the same page. And the only way that you're going to uh, do that, the only way that I'm going to be able to drive this home is to establish your unity in the gospel. But once that unity in the gospel is in place, you folks can help support me because I want to take the gospel to Spain. And in order to go, I'm going to need your prayer and I'm going to need your money. In part, what the book of Romans is, it is a missionary fundraising letter. Um, now, a side note as we end this sub-point. As you have read the book of Romans during the course of your life, have you ever stopped to consider what is not in this book? Uh, Schreiner concludes with this. Full discussions of Christology, that is the doctrine of Christ, ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things, and the Lord's Supper were not needed since no, since, uh, no one disputed Pauline teaching in these areas. In other words, if you read the book of Romans, there's a lot of things that aren't there. They didn't need to be there. That didn't serve his purpose. Well, I hope in all of this you get the gist or the synopsis of the book, which brings us to our final introductory matter, and that is the structure. In other words, what was the outline of the book? Uh, let me paint in very broad strokes. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is doctrine. 
chapters 12 through 16 is practical application. 1 through 11, doctrine. 11 through 16, practical application. If you want me to break it down a little bit more precisely, still it will be be, be a, sort of a, a, a flyover, but I'll break it down a little bit more precisely. Chapter 1, Paul says the Gentiles are sinners. Chapter 2, he says the Jews are sinners. In chapter 3, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 is an example of Abraham's faith. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 talk about the results of salvation in our lives. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 talk about Jew and Gentile relations in God's overall plan. The practical part, which starts in chapter 12, talks about our conduct. Chapter 13 is how we are to relate to government and society and to one another. As I stated earlier, chapters 14 and 15, it tells us how we are to relate to the weak brethren. And then in chapter 16, he gives greetings and says goodbye. Now, that is a rough overview. That is a quick overview with just a couple of details but hopefully now you have a little bit of a grasp upon the book of Romans as a whole. So that was point number one, Roman numeral one, the letter. Now we move on to Roman numeral two, and that is the author, chapter one, verse one. Again, please allow me to read this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We're going to break this verse down into four uh, subparts, and we're going to maintain our S alliteration, and we're going to look at the sobriquet, which is another word for the nickname, the servant, the sent one, and finally the separated one. In the ancient Near East, letters followed a very standard format. Uh, which would begin with a salutation, and a standard salutation would have three parts, the sender, the audience, and then some greetings. And true to form, uh, in Paul's largest letter, he gives a salutation, which follows a formal format, and it is the longest of his salutation. Uh, it, it's made up of 95 Greek words, and it runs all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, these opening words of New Testament salutations are not to be skipped over. They are not to be skimmed. They are just as inspired as the rest of the book. And hopefully you will see or begin to see as we study verse 1 today that even in this formal introduction which follows the formal format of how letters were written in that day, Paul is already at work in promoting his purpose. So, with that said, let's look at our four subpoints, beginning with the sobriquet or the nickname Paul, the first word in the book. His given name was Saul, uh, just like the first king of Israel. Uh, his parents may have picked the name Saul because they, like King Saul, were from the tribe of Benjamin. But in the ancient Near East, just as it is here today, it's common for people to have nicknames. Uh, did you know that Ed is not my name? Uh, my name is Edwin. I did not select that, but that is my name. But you call me Ed. And Saul's uh, Greek nickname was Paul. Or, or at least that's what we call him. 
you know that nobody ever called him Paul. Uh, they would have referred to him by his Greek name, and that would be Paulos, uh, which can mean small. Now, historians tell us that he was not a big man, and so maybe they called him Paul because he was not that big. Or maybe, and I lean in this direction, maybe he adopted that name or was given that name because it sounds like or is similar to Saul. Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul. Uh, We do the same thing in our day and time. One of the members of our church uh, is a man by the name of Tom Scott. Uh, He is from Poland. You do understand that Tom Scott's name is not Tom. Uh, when I met him, uh, I called him Tom. I said, is that your is that your birth certificate name? He said, no, my name is Tom Skehevich. But when I moved to the United States, I just decided to go by the name Tom. And, and you see this all the time, uh, that people will be born in a certain context, but then at a certain point in life, they move on and they will adopt a new name so as to accommodate the new place where they are going. My brother Paul, ironically, was a missionary at one time. Uh, he moved from the United States to Ecuador his entire life. He had been called Paul, but when he got to Ecuador, he adopted the name Pablo. Well, in the same way, uh, Saul did not change his name to Paul, but Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his nickname or his Greek name. Now, if you think about how Luke writes, and Luke is a very precise writer who does really good research, when Luke sits down and he starts to write the book of Acts, do you think he knew before he started writing that most of what he was going to write about was a fellow by the name of Paul? Absolutely. He knew that before he even started to write. Do you think he knew before he started writing that this man that he is writing about was given the name Saul, but then adopted the name Paul. Absolutely, he knew that. So why then does Luke not from the very beginning just refer to him as Paul the entire way through? It is because Luke is pointing out that Saul of Tarsus, in his original uh, pre-conversion, his conversion and his initial context, was primarily ministering to a Jewish audience. But when in the middle of chapter 13, it is, it is, it is really set forth that he is the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, Luke changes his name at this point and begins to call him Paul. And he does so for the rest of the book and everybody else refers to him as Paul. I also found it very interesting what is not included in verse 1. And that is that Paul does not mention any of his friends who are with him in his opening salutation. Now, when you get to the end of the book of Romans and you study the people that are with him at the time and the people that send greetings, he is going to mention eight other people. But he doesn't mention any of them at the start. Why? Because he needs to establish himself and his apostolic unique authority uh, to bring them a word from God. So he boldly introduces himself by his nickname or his sobriquet, which is Paul. The next observation from the text is that he is the servant. Again, in verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Literally, this can be interpreted as a slave 
one who is under the complete authority of another. Now, we can read this and imply several things from this. The, the traditional way of reading it is to look at it and to admire the humility of Paul because he refers to himself as a servant. And, and, and you can even use this sort of as motivation to be a servant because if Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, is a servant, well, then what does that make me? And you can even take it a step further and say, since Paul is a servant, we should be servants. But but even beyond that, the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be the servant of all. And then Jesus talks about himself in Mark 10, 45. And he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, don't miss that last phrase, to give himself a ransom for many. That is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance, and that is the ultimate act of service. And when we look at that, we can be impressed by and motivated by the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Apostle Paul. Yet, as true as the humility and motivation angle may be, I don't think that's why Paul includes right up front that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. And notice that he does not write Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, but he switches the order and he sticks Messiah right up front, Messiah Jesus. I, I, I don't think it is for us seeing his humility. I don't think it's for us to be motivated to serve. Although we should see his humility and we should serve, that's not his point. Here is his point, I believe. In the Old Testament, stick with me, the title Servant of the Lord is used many times in order to signify one who is a chief spokesman for the Lord. Let me give you several examples. And, and, and you do know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but then it was translated into Greek. That Greek translation is known as the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this phrase, servant of the Lord, appears many times to refer to many of the key figures in the Old Testament. So for example, in Joshua chapter 14, verse 7, it says, Moses, the servant of the Lord. Identical phrase that Paul uses. When you get to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, verse 29, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. Identical phrase. Psalm 89.3 speaks of David, my servant. And then in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23, it says, all his servants, the prophets. Servants there, same identical word that Paul uses. And there are a lot of other examples in the Old Testament, and I hope that you get the idea. Because when you read the Old Testament and you read about Moses or Joshua or David or the prophets, and you read about them being servants, the first thing that comes to your mind is not that they were humble and that they were willing to do whatever was asked for of, of them, although they were humble and they were willing to do whatever was asked of them. But the main thing that you get when you read Moses, the servant of the Lord, it denotes someone who is unique and special and in a position of service which is significant in its purpose. Now, again, I'm not saying that Paul wasn't humble. He was, for crying out loud. He, he, he made tents for a living when he was a missionary. But that's not the point here. The point is, is that he is drawing attention to the fact 
that Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, has him doing a very important job. This is a bad illustration, but it will somewhat get the point across. You meet someone and you say, what, what, what line of work are you in? And they say, I'm a servant. Say, okay, good, that's, that's, honest, that's honest work. You meet someone else and you say, well, what line of work are you in? And they say, well, I'm a maid. Good, it's good, honest work. But where do you work? I work in the White House. Then you perk up. Oh, really? You're not just a servant, but you're a servant in the White House. Hey, can I ask you a few questions? What's Joe really like? You know, you, you, that, that you want to get information because she is a servant of the president. In the same way, we're not thinking so much of her humility as being a maid as much as we are thinking about the fact that she is working for the president. Here, yes, we are thinking that Paul has the demeanor of a servant, but the key is that he is a servant of the Lord. And since he is a servant of the Lord and has such an important job, he writes this, I believe, so that their ears will perk up and they will listen. Uh, here's the next observation from verse 1, and that is that Paul is the sent one. He is the sent one. Again, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Uh, the word apostle literally means sent one. Uh, the word apostle is not intrinsically a religious word. It would be used in, in, in commerce. Somebody who's sent from one place to another to do a task would be an apostle. It's, it's not, at its core, a religious word. It simply means one who is sent. It's akin to being an ambassador. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus is referred to as an apostle. He was sent from God to save us. And so when Paul uses that word, what does he mean? Is he simply saying that he was sent to preach the gospel? Well, he certainly was sent to preach the gospel, but, but I think it means much more than that. You see, Jesus called 12 apostles. One of them was a fraud. Jesus knew from the start that Judas would betray him, and when Judas killed himself. He had to be replaced. And in Acts chapter 1, Matthias is his replacement. And so if the 12 are complete, that number of 12 is complete, what is Paul? Well, I was helped by biblical commentator William Hendrickson, who I think explains it very well. Let me quote him. His, speaking of Paul's, his apostleship was the same as the 12, Yet Paul was not one of the twelve. The twelve, by recognizing Paul as having been specifically called to minister to the Gentiles, were in effect carrying out through him their calling to the Gentiles, end quote. And I think that Hendrickson nails it. In other words, he's not one of the twelve, but he is every bit as much an apostle as they are. Yet he has a different mission. His mission is to the Gentiles. And then Hendrickson goes on to list some of the qualifications of an apostle, and he notes that Paul meets all of these qualifications. First of all, he was chosen by Christ. He was an eyewitness to the risen Christ. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to know all truth. He had the ability to do miracle signs and wonders. 
and he had authority over all of the churches. So, so even Paul, in speaking about himself, sees himself on an equal parallel with the 12 apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul puts himself in the same category as the 12. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, speaking about the risen Christ and how he appeared to his disciples, he says, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12. Skip down three verses to 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and Paul writes, last of all, as to one, last of all, as to one untimely born or born out of season, he appeared also to me. So he appears to the 12, and then later he appears last of all to me. So his time for appointment was different. His mission is different than the 12, but he carries just as much authority as the 12. It's also very important to note by way of practical application that Paul refers to himself and to his apostolic ministry as being last of all. That is something that you should hang on to. In other words, he was the last apostle to be appointed. There were no apostles appointed after the apostle Paul. And certainly there are no apostles today. And so when a church claims to be an apostolic church, or when someone tells you that they are an apostle, I'm sure they mean well, but they are not apostles. And if they insist upon calling themselves apostles, well, then you can call them into question simply by asking them to perform a miracle, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the signs of an apostle were done among you with miracles and signs and wonders. If they can't do miracles, among other things, they are not apostles. They are not apostles. Paul was the last of the apostles. But back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Notice that it says that he was called, uh, literally selected or chosen. He was called to be an apostle. This is not an invitation. Uh, you'll hear people uh, viewing somebody doing something and they do it well, and then they'll say, oh, he missed his calling. Well, that is impossible when it comes to apostleship. God doesn't say to Paul, you know, we've got this lost world out there and you seem to be a pretty bright, tenacious fellow. Can I appeal to you? Would you please pray about and consider being one of my apostles? No, it's not that at all. There's not an option involved in this. Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says that the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable, which means that Paul did not volunteer, that Paul could not have said no, that he is not claiming any kind of authority based upon his own merit or his own desire to serve. Now, I know that he was willing to serve, but, but honestly, whether he was willing or not, this wasn't up to him. He was called, an irrevocable call by Christ to be an apostle, and therefore, he had absolute spiritual authority as a direct representative from the Lord. And this is so important for us today to understand. These people who are in Rome... They needed to listen very carefully to what he say, said because what he was saying was coming directly from the Lord. So to hear the words of Paul was to hear the word of God. Yet sadly, it is fashionable in some churches to hear preachers say, I don't like Paul, or I don't trust Paul, 
or, or I, I, I really don't want to hear what Paul has to say. Just give me the words of Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, Paul's message is just as true and just as authoritative as the words of Christ. Which brings us to the final observation about our author, and that is, he is the separated one. Once again, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart the separated one, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. So as you can probably guess by now, this, like the other descriptions in the verse, it is included so as to establish his credibility. I find it really interesting that Paul uses this set-apart language. The reason why is because the word Pharisee, and remember Paul used to be a Pharisee, the word Pharisee literally means the separated one. And what Paul is saying here is, well, I used to be a Pharisee, I used to be a separated one, and now, ironically, I am still a separated one, but... I am no longer separated under the laws of Judaism, but now there is a separation, and it is a separation to preach the gospel of God. And his separation to this task is best spelled out in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Uh, let me encourage you, please, to turn to that passage, look at it with your own eyes in your own Bible, because this is the heart of Paul's calling and his separation to do the work being an apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, start right there. Wow. Before this guy is even born, he has been what? Set apart or separated and who called me, we've already dealt with that word, it is an irrevocable call, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I wasn't always saved, but, but I was at a point when God revealed his son to me, revealed Jesus to me. Why? Why did God do that? In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and then he says, I didn't confer immediately or consult immediately with, with anyone. But the point is, he is set apart before he is even born to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It was a separation or a calling which took place before he ever saw the light of day. And it was especially for the Gentiles, the predominant audience in the Roman church. And notice the purpose we have this word for, F-O-R. Notice the purpose for this separation. Here we go. It was for the gospel of God. Do you find it interesting that his first mention of gospel, and you know that Paul, among all of the New Testament authors, uses the word gospel more than any other. Do you find it interesting that his first mention of the word gospel in Romans is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is the gospel of God? Now, before he can catch his breath, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he calls it the gospel of his son. And so the gospel of God is the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel of Jesus is the gospel of God. But, but our question for right now is, why in his initial usage of the word gospel, 
Is it not the gospel of Jesus, but it is the gospel of God? Now, maybe it shouldn't shock us too much if we know the book of Romans, because the book of Romans is a God-centered or a theocentric book where the word God appears 153 times. But that doesn't answer the question as to why his initial usage of the word gospel is gospel of God and not the gospel of Jesus. But I have a guess as to why he did this. The word gospel is like the word apostle. It is not intrinsically a religious word. The word gospel simply means good news. It doesn't in and of itself mean good news about Jesus Christ. It just is a word that means good news. A lot of biblical words don't have religious meanings. Gospel is one of them. Apostle is one of them. And please understand that in the Roman world, and this is written to Rome, Now, what is Rome at this point? Rome is the capital of the world. Rome is ruling the world at this time. Rome is the most important city in the world at this time. Rome is where the emperor lives. Rome is the most important city in the world. And in the Roman world, they spoke very often of the gospel. Not the gospel of Jesus Christ but they talked about the good news as it related to the Roman government, especially to the Roman emperor or the the king, whom they believed to be a god. In fact, you had to confess Caesar is Lord. You had to believe that Caesar was divine. So let me give you an example of how they would use the word gospel or good news in the Roman Empire. In AD 69, while Rome had surrounded Jerusalem, the Roman general at the time, someone named Vespasian, decided to press his claim to imperial power. In other words, he's saying to himself, look, in the last three years, we've had three emperors, three Caesars, and they have all died. It's time for me to take over. And so Josephus, who is Jewish, he's not a Christian, but he is a historian, and he's writing about what he is seeing. He's he's, he's basically a, a newspaper reporter on what he is seeing and what he is hearing in the world at that time. He writes this, and I quote, When the news spread of Vespasian's ascension to the throne, in other words, when he was inaugurated, every city celebrated the gospel and offered sacrifices on his behalf. They did not celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. They celebrated the gospel or the good news that Vespasian was now the top dog and they made sacrifices on his behalf. There needs to be a celebration. This is really good news. He is now our emperor. Same identical word, good news, gospel. Josephus goes on to say, On reaching Alexandria, Vespasian was greeted by the gospel from Rome and his embassies of congratulation, congratulations from every quarter of the world. This guy is traveling, gets to Alexandria. What happens? Walks into the city. What does he hear immediately? He hears the gospel. Not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel, the good news from Rome such that he is now the top dog and he gets congratulations as a result. 
And so here's my guess. Perhaps Paul calls it the gospel of God, sort of as an in-your-face to the Roman emperor. I am not taking my orders from Caesar. I I am not taking my orders from Nero. I I am not here to talk about the good news of the kingdoms of this world. I am separated, set apart by Christ to give you, the saints in Rome, the good news about the king, the gospel king, God himself. That, I believe, is why he says the gospel of God. It is. My message It's not a message about this world. It is about a kingdom. It is good news about God and news that comes from God. All right. One verse down, 432 to go. Two points of application before we, uh, before we close. Uh, number one, read Romans and memorize Romans. Uh, John Chrysostom, who was born in AD 407, um, said that and he was a, it was a great preacher in the early days of the church. He says, he said that, um, you should have the book of Romans read to you in its entirety twice a week out loud. I think I think that's a good practice. But I will say, the more you read it, the more you will get out of these sermons. So immerse yourself in every way in the book of Romans. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, come to church and hear what I have to say about it. Second application is make sure that your gospel, that your good news is the good news or the gospel of God and not the gospel of this world. You know, I got some good news this week. Good news from the world of sports. My team, the Georgia Bulldogs, won their second in a row national championship. And, and, and I'm glad. I mean, we waited 41 years to win last year. We won last year, and now we have taken our place as the kings of college football. We are the best, indisputably. We are the best. But I want to share something with you. As good as this news is, it kind of leaves me empty. Like, my team won, and I suppose that's good. I mean, like, it's better than losing. But what do I ultimately have based upon the fact that we have won? How good is this news? Let me tell you. I'm sitting at the top right now. Your team didn't make it to the top. My team made it to the top. I have a view that you don't have. Let me tell you the view from the top. There's no power in this good news. There's no joy in this news. It's not lasting or satisfying. It doesn't render any kind of a reward. It just, it's just here today, gone tomorrow. I'm watching the, the, the game. We are winning 65 to 7. I call my son up during the game as I'm watching us win the national championship. And I said, who are we losing this year to the NFL draft and who will be back? And my son said, dad, 
Just enjoy this for now. Don't worry about next year. Why do I need to think about next year? I need to think about next year because it is all just a bunch of nothing. Again, I'm glad we won, but it gives you nothing. On the other hand, there is good news, and it is the gospel of God. And it is life-giving, and it is joy-producing, and it is satisfying, and it is powerful, and it is eternally rewarding. And this is what the church at Rome needed, and this is what I need in my heart, and this is what you need. The gospel of God, of his kingdom, the good news of his kingdom, the good news that he loves you. And the good news that he demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die in your place. And the, and the good news that, that, that Jesus Christ not only paid for your sins, but that he rose again and that he's alive and that if you believe in him, you will be saved. I had someone tell me their team won a sports competition. They woke up the next morning and they were empty. They said they got saved, they received the good news, they woke up the next morning and they were filled with joy. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so I would ask you, what are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? What dominates your thoughts and your thinking? Is it the gospel of this world or is it the gospel of God? The gospel of God gives us power to obey and it gives us lasting joy. Is your gospel the gospel of this world or is it the gospel of God? If today your gospel is not the gospel of God, let me give you very good news. I want to tell you that God loves you. I want to tell you that Jesus died for sinners like you. I want to tell you that he's alive and I want to tell you that if you call upon him, you can be saved and you can know this satisfaction. You can have your sins forgiven you can avoid hell and you can forever be with the Lord. The gospel of God is a substantive piece of good news. And that's what Paul was writing to the church at Rome about. Not the kingdoms of this world, but the gospel of God. Father in heaven, as we now uh, go from this place today, I pray to your Lord that you would, by your spirit, move in our hearts and cause us, Lord, to pursue the gospel of God as it is seen in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for that which would sustain us and motivate us, give us joy, and in that we rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.